I was six years old, and I will never forget this Christmas because every year after this, I think we watched a Christmas story, and it was crazy how my life paralleled that Christmas story that year. At, at six years old, my brother had gotten a BB gun for Christmas a couple years before me. He's two years older than I am. And so he had gotten a BB gun for Christmas, I think, the year before. And man, all I wanted was a BB gun. That's all I wanted. Anytime mom and dad ask me, what do you want for Christmas? I want a BB gun. Write a letter to Santa, I want a BB gun. What do you want from your grandparents? A BB gun, a BB gun, a BB gun. I wore them out worse than Ralphie wore his parents out, asking for that BB gun. That's all I wanted. And I knew that as I talked with my parents that the chances of me getting this BB gun weren't very good. In fact, this is the actual BB gun right here. And you'll notice this little... Uh, symbol right there on the bottom. This was the 50th anniversary Red Rider BB gun, and it had to be mine. Like, I needed that BB gun, or else I was not going to be able to go on living. And so I told my parents, this is what I want. And they said, well, you're just not old enough yet. You need to ask for something else. I'm like, I'm not asking for anything else. I'm putting all my hope, all my eggs in this one basket for the Red Rider BB gun. That's what I want. And so it came to be Christmas morning, and I, I was always the first one up in my family on Christmas morning. I would get up about 4 o'clock, and I'd go get my brother and sister up, which they loved. Uh, not really, but I would go, and I would just get by the Christmas tree, and I'd check out all the presents. I'd shake the ones from mom and dad, trying to figure out what it is, see if it's clothes or if it's something good. Uh, I would shake the ones from my brother and sister and try to figure out what they got me. Uh, and so I was just always real excited. So I get up 4 o'clock. And I open my eyes, and I'm expecting to run downstairs, and there at the Christmas tree is going to be light shining down from heaven, angels singing, there will be my Red Rider BB gun. So I get up, 4 o'clock in the morning, I run downstairs, the fireplace is going, I can tell that Santa Claus has been there, because he always left the fireplace going, the cookies are gone, the milk is gone, and I'm, I'm running over to the tree, I'm looking by my stocking, and there's no Red Rider BB gun, no light shining down, no angels singing. Finally, I wait till about 7 o'clock, and I can't take it anymore, so I wake up the rest of the family. I'm like, come on, let's open some presents. Being the youngest, I always got to go first. So mom and dad hand me my first present, and I open it up. The very first thing I open up for Christmas that year, pajamas. Just what every six-year-old boy wants. I get pajamas, and they keep going. Now we're taking turns. I get my second present. I open it up. Clothes. Just what every little boy wants, pajama and clothes for Christmas, man, and it continues on and on and on like this. All I got from Santa Claus were some coloring and activity books, and I thought, this is it. I'm going to have to change schools. I can't go to school on Christmas, uh, after Christmas and say, I got pajamas, clothes, and coloring books for Christmas. So finally, all the presents are done. And I empty out my stocking, and of course in the stocking's a, a black comb and some brute cologne. You guys remember that? I think I put the whole bottle on that day, and, and nothing. You know, meanwhile, I'm watching my brother in the bottom of his stocking. There's this container of 6,000 copperhead BBs, which if you know anything about BB guns, that's top-of-the-line BBs right there. And I'm looking for mine. I'm thinking, where's my, where's my BBs? Maybe mom and dad are playing a trick on me, and, and my BBs are in the bottom of my stocking. So I dump that whole thing out. Nothing. Nothing. No angels, no BB gun, Nothing. We're kind of sitting there, I'm playing with my brothers and sisters' toys, because all I got was clothes and pajamas and brute cologne for Christmas. Uh, I'm playing with their toys, and Dad goes into the, the bedroom to get dressed. And I hear him call out from the bedroom, Hey, Charlie, there's one more present for you in here. 
And my mom says, I wonder what that is. Sure enough, dad comes out. He's holding the box. The angels are singing, lights shining down. Mom and dad came through. It's a Red Ryder BB gun. Man, I killed so many sparrows that day with that BB gun. They had come through. I hoped and hoped and hoped. And finally, that hope was fulfilled. That hope was fulfilled. And I really think that this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Not the hope for a toy, but the hope for a Savior. The hope of salvation that comes with Jesus Christ. Hope is just this ray of light that shines and pierces through the darkness that says, give it one more try. Wait just a little bit longer. And that's exactly what we celebrate at Christmas is the hope of Jesus Christ. When, when our world was dark, he was the son of God, became man, came to earth and entered this dark world, lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins so that we could have the hope of salvation. This is what we celebrate. Now, some of us, when we think about Christmas time and the holidays, it doesn't really bring up emotions of hope. It brings up emotions of despair, maybe anger, frustration, because we know when we go home, uh, our family is going to make the Griswold family look like the Cleavers from Leave it to Beaver. We know that our family is the family that puts fun in dysfunctional. And so we get anxious We despair. There's no hope for our family. Or so we think. This Christmas season, our series is Dysfunctional Family Christmas, and we're going to be looking at uh, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to kind of be looking at some of the characters that are listed in Jesus' genealogy. And what we're going to see is that even the Lamb of God had black sheep in his family tree. Like, even Jesus Christ had some characters in his family that, that would belong on Jerry Springer. And we're going to see that. And I, I, my hope is that as we look at this, uh, we're going to see the need for hope for our family and grace and joy and peace that comes only through God and only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to start in Genesis 38. Um, This is a story that you may or may not be familiar with. It's one that we don't normally associate with Christmas or Christmas time. But as we go through this story, we're going to see that there is hope. There is hope in this story. There is the hope of divine providence. When all seems lost, there is the hope of divine providence. And I've got to be honest, as we go through this story, things are going to go from bad to worse to a train wreck in a hurry. This is not a pretty story. But there is hope in this story. And really, Genesis 38, we have to kind of backtrack. We're right in the middle of of Genesis, kind of in the middle here, and it's the middle of a storyline. God has come to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give you land, which is Israel, and I'm going to give you descendants, and here's the big promise. Through you, all people of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham has a son at the age of 100 And he names his son Isaac, and God confirms that promise through Isaac. He says, Isaac, the same promises I made to Abraham, I'm making to you. Through you, all nations will be blessed. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They fought a little bit over that birthright, but ultimately God says, Jacob, you are the one that this promise will be passed down through. And Jacob hears this, and he says, well, I'm just going to start this great nation all by myself. And Jacob goes out, and he has 12 sons. He's going to start this great nation, and he's got 12 sons. And you would think of the 12 sons, there would be one who would stand out as the one that God would carry his promise through. 
But as we look at the story of, of Jacob's sons, we see that this is just a hopeless family. This is a hopeless family. Uh, in chapter 37 of Genesis, we read about Joseph. You'll remember Joseph, the coat of many colors. Are you all familiar with that story? Raise your hands. Please tell me. Yes, there we go. So Joseph has the coat of many colors given to him by his dad because he was daddy's favorite, which his brothers didn't really like. And so when he has a dream and he tells his brothers about his dream of how he's going to rule over them, they like that even less. And so they decide that they're going to kill him. But one of them says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this well and leave him for dead. So they beat him up and they throw him in the well. And while they're waiting there for him to die, uh, some, some people come by and they decide, you know what, we're going to sell him into slave, slavery to these people. And they sell Joseph into slavery. So you've lost one son. You read back in Genesis about uh, his other sons, Jacob's other sons, and you read that one of them commits an incestuous relationship. His oldest commits an incestuous relationship. His second and third born commit murder. And you're looking at this family and you're thinking, the promise of God for all nations to be blessed through this family doesn't look like it's going to happen. This family is hopeless. And what we're going to see is that in this story, when all seems lost, when it seems hopeless, there's the story of Judah. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. It starts, and it says, At that time Judah left his brothers and settled near the, in a Dulamite named Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Chezib she gave birth to him. Now, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us, but really what we see here is that Judah has made some hopeless choices. He's made some hopeless choices. And it doesn't seem like such a big deal to us, but really what happens here is that Judah comes to his dad and he says, Dad, brothers, it's been great being a part of this big family and everything, but I'm out of here. I'm going to take off and go my own way. And he goes his own way and he ends up in Canaan and he marries a Canaanite. And that doesn't seem like such a big deal to me and you, but to them it was a big deal. Because back in Genesis 24, Abraham made Isaac promise that neither he nor his descendants would marry a Canaanite. Abraham says, look, I know you're going to be living in their land. I know you're going to be living next to them and their daughters are going to be beautiful, but do not give your children in marriage to the Canaanite people. They do not worship God the way we worship God. They worship false gods. Do not marry them. Swear to me that neither you nor your descendants will marry a Canaanite. He says, swear to me. And so Isaac doesn't. Jacob doesn't, but then we have Judah who comes along and he marries a Canaanite and he has children with them. And so we have these hopeless choices and these hopeless choices lead to more and more and more problems. Picking up in verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Now I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I think it's important that we know this. That the word evil that's used to describe Ur is, in some translations, says wicked. And this is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6. When God tells Noah that he's going to flood the entire earth, it says that God looked over the earth and he saw that the entire earth was wicked. And men's hearts were only evil all the time. This is the same word. And as we read in Genesis chapter 6, what we see is that the people are called wicked because they were very violent. 
and they were murderous people. And so although the text doesn't tell us for sure, we can, we can kind of assume that Ur was probably this kind of man. He was probably a violent, murderous kind of a man, so much so that God looks down and says, I've had enough of this. I'm taking you out. And so Tamar loses her husband. We already have hopeless choices, and now it's leading to hopeless tragedy. We're seeing this hopeless tragedy here. So Tamar, this young woman, is left husbandless as a widow with no children. Then Judah, verse 8, said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. Again, this seems like a weird practice to us. This seems like something that, that, again, would end up on Jerry Springer. But in this day and age that we're reading about, in this time, this was not an uncommon practice. In fact, this is actually before God ordained what's called leveret marriage through the Mosaic Law. Leveret marriage is this, that if your brother dies without leaving children, a son, then as the other brother, it's your responsibility to provide a son for your sister-in-law. And so Judah says, hey, you need to fulfill your duty. And the reason they did this was because everything was tied to the name of the husband. And so the land and all the possessions and all the inheritance that were to be passed down to Ur would now be gone, lost. His name would be wiped out. And so they wanted to carry on that name. They wanted to carry on the possessions. And so Judah says, you need to go fulfill your duty. But then this happens. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Onan is smart. Onan can look around and put two and two together and say, there used to be three of us, and we were going to divide daddy's stuff three ways, but now there's only two. It's 50-50 now. I'm going to get a bigger inheritance. And he realizes that if he provides a son for Tamar, that that son is going to get some of what would be his stuff. And it's going to mess up his inheritance. Not only that, it's going to mess up the inheritance of his own children that he has with his real wife. So this is what he does. Again in verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be hers. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that it would not produce an offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, so he put him to death also. Onan has made some horrible, tragic choices following the footsteps of his father. And this is a real tragedy because now Tamar is caught in the middle. Tamar is the one who's left without a husband. Tamar is the one who's left without children. And she's caught in the middle of all this. This is just hopeless tragedy. You have two brothers that have died. You have a young woman who's now a widow in no way to produce an offspring to care for her, to carry on that name. She's going to lose all of this property. But the real tragedy is Tamar herself. Tamar is the real tragedy. Because what has she done to deserve all this? You know, in my own life, when I make mistakes, when I make bad choices, and there are consequences for that, I, I can man up and own it. And say, yeah, you know what, I, I deserve this. But what's hard for me is when I make bad choices and it affects other people, like my children. And this is what's happened. 
through the bad choices of, of the two brothers, Ur and Onan, which, let's be honest, they kind of deserved it, right? Can we at least admit that, that these guys were, were, were okay with them being taken out because they kind of deserved it? But Tamar gets caught up in all this mess. Like, I can own my own mistakes, but it's, it's another thing when someone else gets caught up in this. And we see this all the time when we hear about drunk drivers or, or people that are texting and driving, and it costs someone else their life. In 2011, there was a young woman up near Fort Worth um, named Kathy Bond. Uh, this is her daughter, Caitlin. Caitlin Bond, in uh, September of 2011, was stuck on I-35 uh, in a construction zone, and traffic had stopped. A man driving a super-duty truck behind her was taking a text message, reading a text message, didn't see that traffic in front of him had stopped, and at 70 or 80 miles per hour, plowed into the back of Caitlin's car, killing her instantly. Through no fault of her own. She didn't make a bad decision. Yet tragedy struck this family. You see it all the time. Drunk drivers. People choose to drive drunk. They come into the oncoming lane of traffic, killing someone else. Through no fault of their own. There was a family up near Keller. Um, you may have heard about a 16-year-old boy was driving drunk and uh, killed four out of five family members. Only the dad survived. He didn't make any bad choices. Someone else did. So we have Tamar who's stuck in this hopeless tragedy through no fault of her own. She's going through and she is suffering the consequences. And it's going to lead her to do some some hopeless choices. She's going to make some hopeless choices of her own. She's desperate now. She sees that Onan is gone and her husband is gone and she still has no child. And let's face it, she's been used. Right? When it says whenever he slept with her, this implies that there was an ongoing thing. This wasn't just a one-time thing. He did this over and over and over again, knowing that he was never going to bring the act to completion. He was never planning on providing for her, yet he strung her along, giving her that sliver of hope. He used her. It's just tragedy. Tragedy all around. It goes on. It says, Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in his father's house. Basically, Judah comes to her and says, You're the reason my sons are dying. He can't even see the wickedness and the evil in his own family. None of us have ever done that, have we? Behind our doors, when we shut that front door, our family is perfect. Right? Every single one of us. He's overlooking the evil in his own family. He says, you're the one to blame. It's your fault. Go live with your father. And when my other son is old enough, then I'll give him to you. And he can provide for you. But he knew all along that he wasn't going to do that. That was never going to happen. Judah is, again, stringing her along. He's done everything to make her think that he's going to give her his son. He fails to recognize the evil in his own family. And look what happens in verses 12 through 14. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finally finished mourning, he had his friend Hera the Adulamite. He and his friend Hera the Adulamite went up to Timnah and to the sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. 
So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So all of this tragedy, all of this hopelessness has led Tamar to hopeless desperation. And she sees, she's smart, she's figured it out that I see how, how things work with Judah and his family. They're not going to take care of me. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Right? So Judah now has some tragedy of his own. We don't know why his wife dies, but she dies. And he's got some tragedy of his own. And Tamar's looking around, realizing the whole situation, that, that she is going to be left alone. She's going to be left to die as a widow in her father's house. And Judah is not going to fulfill his responsibility through his sons to provide an heir for her. So she takes matters into her own hands. She's smart. She says, you know what? Judah's wife is dead now. He's probably a little bit lonely. He's going up to shear the sheep, which is a big party. Back in those days, this was like the harvest. This was like the Thanksgiving. This was the big party. There was going to be drinking. There was going to be carousing. There was going to be good old boys doing what good old boys do when good old boys get together. And she knows this is going to happen. So she thinks to herself, maybe if I cover myself, cover my face with a veil like a prostitute, he won't recognize me. And if he has one too many, maybe I can get him into bed. And he's going to provide for me one way or another. She's acting out of hopeless desperation. She's desperate for anything. And it goes on. Picking up in verse 16, he went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with you? I will send a young goat back from my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something for me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her. So here's what's going on here. He comes over. Her plan works. He thinks she's a prostitute, and he goes to sleep with her. But before he sleeps with her, he says, let's come to terms. Let's figure out payment. I don't have anything with me, but I can send a goat. She goes, that's fine. I'm not really interested in the money, but why don't you give me something as a promise, as a pledge, until you send that goat? And he says, well, whatever you want. She says, give me your ring and your staff. Well, what's so important about this ring is that it would have been a stone or some type of metal that was raised or embedded so that when it would roll over clay or or wax, that it would leave the owner's seal. This was kind of like their signature. And so basically she says, leave your driver's license with me, leave your ID with me, and when you send the goat, then I'll give it back to you. And Judah thinks, man, this is a good plan. And so he sleeps with her. And then it says, and she became pregnant by him. When Judah, uh, so he gave, gave them to her, slept with her, and she got pregnant by him. She got up and left and removed the veil and put her widow's clothes on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road to Enaim? There's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said that there has been no cult prostitute here. Listen to what Judah says. Let her keep the items herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. You think? 
Can you imagine going into a town and saying, hey, where's the woman dressed like a prostitute? She has my ID. That's not going to happen. And so good old above par character Judah here comes up with a plan. And Judah says this. He says, uh, let her keep those items for herself, otherwise it would become a laughingstock. After all, I did send the young goat, but you couldn't find her. I was going to pay her. I was good for it. You know me. I'm Judah. I'm a man of my word. I keep my word all the time. Just ask Tamar. Whoops. I'm good character Judah here. I tried to pay her. It's not our fault we couldn't find her. She should have shown up. The story goes on. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute and is now pregnant. Another word for prostitute here in the Hebrew is whore. Now, sure enough, Judah is going to say, you know what? Tamar has had a rough life. Her husband died. My other son, who is supposed to provide an heir for her, has died. She's just doing what she has to do to get by. I'm going to give her grace. You know what? Let's just forget about this whole thing. Because I would never, you know, I'm guilty of engaging with a prostitute. And I would never point the finger at somebody that's committing the same sins as me. None of us ever do that, do we? Nobody's ever done that. No, this is what Judas says. He says, bring her out and let her be burned to death. This is your response? This is your response knowing that you are guilty of the exact same thing that she's been accused of. This is your response. Knowing that you didn't provide for her, this is how you respond. You see, in Judah's mind, this is his chance to get rid of the problem. Judah has viewed Tamar as the problem all along, and so he says, I'm going to deal with this once and for all. I'm going to get rid of her right now. But Tamar was smart. Remember what she asked for? She already had in mind the paternity test coming up. And so she does this. As they were bringing her out, she sent her, her father-in-law this message, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. She had it examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Do you recognize them, Judah? Do you see whose things these are? This is the father of the, this child. Turns out she's pregnant with twins. Judah recognizes that he's made a mistake. And he says, she is more right, more righteous than I am. Because I failed to do my part. She had no choice but to take matters into her own hands. And now Judah is going to suffer a hopeless guilt. Imagine being Judah. Imagine walking around town thinking that everybody knows what you have done. And everybody knows your secret when in actuality maybe nobody knows. But Tamar now has two sons, Perez and Zerah. And imagine being Judah and having to explain to your your grandchildren, who are actually your children, they're supposed to be your grandchildren, explaining to them how they came to be. He's stuck with this hopeless guilt. And there's nothing that he can do to get rid of it because of his hopeless choices, hopeless tragedy, hopeless desperation, and this hopeless guilt. Can you imagine the guilt and shame that he felt, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had an experience where you feel like everyone knows this thing that I've done, when in actuality nobody knows it. You just feel hopelessly trapped in your guilt and your shame. 
This whole story is just one big mess. Kind of makes you feel good about your own family, doesn't it? Like, hey, at least we're not like Judah and Tamar. We're, we're doing all right. But it's out of this mess that we're going to see the greatest hope of all. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to see God's divine providence coming out of a hopeless situation, out of a hopeless family, hopeless choices, hopeless tragedy, hopeless desperation, and hopeless guilt. God is going to come through and provide in a way that no one could have ever expected. Matthew chapter 1, the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the record of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And Matthew and Luke record Jesus' genealogy. They, they think it's important that before you read about this person, this man, Jesus Christ, you need to understand where he's coming from. You need to understand his family and his lineage because it's important. It matters. And so Matthew starts with Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I don't know about you, but if I were writing the story of the Messiah, if I were writing the story of the Savior of the world, these are the last people that I would have included in his lineage. I would not have put this story in here. All of us have that crazy uncle, that crazy relative that we leave out of the family tree, right? We don't include them. They don't get invitations. They don't get mentioned. We've got the relative that was the horse thief in the 1800s that we just don't talk about them. They get swept under the rug. This is one of those situations. This is one of those things that when you're recording your family tree, you don't add these people in there. You put them in your wife's family tree. Uh, These are the kind of people that you want to forget about, but here they are included. Because in the midst of hopelessness, Jesus brings hope. And the hope is this, that even though God uses people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people that you would expect God to use, he also uses people like Judah and Tamar, broken people, to bring about his hope. To bring about his purposes. And what we have to realize is that God is accomplishing his purpose despite our unfaithfulness. Despite our unfaithfulness, God is accomplishing his purpose. Every single one of us has done this. God has said, this is what I want you to do, and we say no. Now, does this mean that we get a free uh, pass, that we get to uh, continue in sin, that grace may abound, that, like Romans 6 says? No, Paul says. Paul says, by no means is that the case. This isn't a license to go out and sin. I don't know how it works, but this is what I do know. I know that God is sovereign and God has a plan. But I also know that he has given me a part to play in that plan. And sometimes, man, I am spot on and I'm able to follow God and I'm able to walk in his steps and follow the plan that he's laid out for me. Other times I see the plan and I say no and I walk away from that plan. And I end up in hopeless tragedy. But I know that God is still in control and he redeems those situations and still uses it in spite of my hopelessness in spite of my brokenness he uses it for his purpose even though i'm unfaithful god uses it for his purpose not only that but god uses the unlikeliest of people god uses unlikely people sure he used abraham isaac and jacob but he also used people like judah and tamar he also used people like the disobedient prophet jonah 
He used people like the loudmouth Peter. And he uses a broken Chuck for his own purposes. Sinful, evil, wicked at times. In my thoughts, my actions don't honor him, yet he uses me. And the, the hope is this, that God wants to use you. No matter what your situation is, God wants to use you. No one is hopeless in God's sight. Your family members are not hopeless. You are not hopeless when God looks at you. He wants to use you for his purpose. And the way he does this is through his hidden yet reliable ways. Again, no one would have ever expected. When they looked at Perez and Zerah, they never thought, hey, you know what, those two kids, someday the Savior of the world is going to come through them. No one ever thought the Savior of the world is going to come through Judah and Tamar. That's how God's going to do it. No. God was working behind the scenes in hidden yet reliable ways. And he does the same thing in our own lives and in the lives of our family members. You may have a family member right now that you look at and you say, these people are just hopeless. They are crazy. They are insane. I don't even want to be around them. Yet we know through the power of the gospel that they are not hopeless. They have great hope. God still wants to use them, and God may be working in their lives, even through some of their bad choices. God may be working to bring them to a point when they can hear and understand the gospel. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope. What are you hoping in this Christmas season? Where is your hope found? Maybe you feel like you're full of guilt and shame. There's hope. Maybe as you look at your own life, you think, I'm hopeless and there's no way that God could ever use me. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. Maybe as you look at your family, you think about going home and you're dreading that. As you think about those relatives and you see the hopeless choices that they're making, causing them to live in hopeless tragedy. You think all is lost, but you need to realize that there is hope in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, there is hope for your family. As we conclude this morning, I I just want us to take two. You'll notice at the bottom of your um, bulletin there, there's a little spot that says take two, and then it says I will. I just want us to take two minutes to write down one thing that God is saying to you this morning through this message through his word, through the story of Judah and Tamar and the ultimate uh, conclusion of that story with the coming of Jesus Christ. What is one thing that God is saying to you and what are you going to do about it this week? Just take two. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in you there is hope. In your Son, Jesus Christ, there is hope. No one is beyond your hope. And that you desire to use us in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of our brokenness, you want to use us. You want to use those people in our family that we look at and we just feel like there's no hope. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season you would remind us that no one is beyond your grasp. No one is beyond being used by you. No one is beyond the power of the gospel. And as we meet with our family and friends this Christmas season, that you would give us the boldness to proclaim that gospel, that we would see tragedy 
turned into victory through your son, Jesus Christ, in their lives. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.